God is the author of salvation and he is mighty to save. He saves people from all tongues, from all nations, and in different ways, both physical and spiritual. Our first reading will be from Jeremiah chapter 31. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they will be my people. This is what the Lord says. The people who survive the sword will find favor in the wilderness. I will come to give rest to Israel. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. I will build you up again, and you, virgin Israel, will be rebuilt. Again you will take up your timbrels and go out to dance with the joyful. Again you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The farmers will plant them and enjoy their fruit. There be a, will be a day when watchmen cry out on the hills of Ephraim, Come, let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 10, 34 to 43. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts every nation, the one who fears, but accepts from every nation, the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message. God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in the Galil after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him, by hanging him on the cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The gospel portion is from the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 28. Brothers and sisters, please stand as we hear again the good news. After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, 
Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and they became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Just as he said, Come and see the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid and yet filled with joy, and they ran to, to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped, clasped his feet, and they worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Reuven Duran is a, a, a fellow believer and a member of uh, the tribe and uh, one uh, resident of this land. And uh, brothers and sisters, please open your ears and your hearts to hear what the Lord has to say to his people today. Good morning. And welcome to the house of the Lord. Let us pray. How good and how pleasant it is for brothers, sisters, to dwell together in unity. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Welcome to Christ Church in Jerusalem. Welcome to the city of the great King. Welcome to Israel. Welcome to the assembly of the saints whose names are written in heaven. Welcome home. It is a pleasure to come to you today, wherever you are, in this wild and troubled world of ours, our friends who are online, and to mind the business of the kingdom of heaven. Because I have a suspicion that this world is not going to get any better. In fact, he promised us, didn't he, long ago, that everything that can be shaken will be shaken for a reason. It's not just to create mayhem, so that, he explains, those things which cannot be shaken touch your heart, pound on your chest. It's a good Hebraic function. Those things which cannot be shaken may remain. We are the community that does not get easily shaken. And Matthew told us the story, as Brother Aaron read for us so eloquently. I love Matthew. He's our ADD disciple. I relate to him. I'm like that. Don't mess with my kitchen. I do my own dishes. I clean my own car. I like Matthew. It's the longest and most detailed of gospel narratives, and he gives us the story in order. Because that's how he thinks. 
He's the kind of guy that would wake up at 2 a.m. to go make sure he washed the dishes right. I can relate. And he gives us the resurrection story in order and properly. As I said before, this is the longest of the gospel narratives. And I love it how he capsules everything together. Everything happened on that early morning, probably pre-dawn. The ladies appeared, the earthquake shook, the stone removed, the angels descend. The appearance, the prayers, the disciples, the, the flabbergasted. A few verses later, we hear about the same disciples whom the Lord told them, Go to the Galilee, I will meet you at the mountain. And he says that the eleven met the Lord at that appointed place, and some still doubted. Get that. It comforts my heart. It comforts my heart to know that the disciples who spent three years plus, at least, might have been more. We think the Lord ministered for three, three and a half years because the scripture describes three cycles of Passovers in which he went up to worship in Jerusalem. He might have ministered for seven years before the cross. And here these guys who spend years with the living and abiding word of God coming in the flesh, hearing his voice, listening to, to his, the sound of his words, John, leaning at his bosom, smelling his armpits, and they stand with a resurrection hymn on the mountain in the Galilee, and some still doubt. Comforts my heart, because I'm like that too. What did they doubt? They couldn't doubt him. He's there. He's standing. He's talking. He's cooking breakfast. They couldn't doubt the reality of God. They were devout Jews. They doubted themselves. Is their perception of reality real? Do they understand the situation correctly? Can this be? That was the question of questions of the virgin Miriam back in Nazareth when the angel Gabriel descended in her living room, interrupted her afternoon nap, gave her the big news. What was her question? How can these things be? For I do not know a man. She didn't question the, the, the reality of God's promise. She questioned, how could it be? Zachariah, on the other hand, John the Baptist's father, when the same angel Gabriel lands on his doorsteps in the holy place six months earlier and gives him the amazing news that his barren old wife shall bear a miraculous child who will prepare the way of the Lord, his question was different. Zechariah said, how would I know that this is so? And you need to catch the difference. Mary was commended for her faith. Zechariah, zip. Gabriel shut his mouth, told him, you sit quiet for nine months. You wanted the miracle of John the Baptist? This is the miracle. A Jewish priest, silent for nine months until the day of the naming of the child. But Matthew gives us a story in order, understandable, we read the resurrection story in the rest of the Gospels, and each one gives us a different perspective. And this is good. This is necessary. In fact, this is part of the credibility 
of the gospel story. Forensic inspectors tell us, those who inspect criminal cases, those who follow through the details and trace the truth, they tell us that if they stand in trial and they listen to the testimony of the witnesses pertaining to a case or a person or an event, and if the testimony of the various witnesses perfectly match, they sniff it out as false. It never should match. Our memories, we are not some kind of living recording cameras recording the event on a plain and virgin film. No. Your memories are made up of a lifelong of experiences, opinions, judgments, hurts, pains, hopes, longings. And then you pass through the event and then it registers on top of your existing soul. So every testimony of the gospel should be different. So I love to read them all. We love to read them all. And to complete and perhaps complement Matthew's testimony, who saw the angels, who saw the stone removed, who saw the glory, the guards fell down as if they're dead and the women amazed. And the word of the Lord comes to them, go quickly. I love that song. We should sing that song more often. It's an old song, go quickly and tell my disciples he's risen, he's no longer dead. John describes Yohanan, the other apostle, the other disciple, the same events. And, and he, saws, he sees different things. He doesn't speak about all the women, but only Mary Magdalena, of whom seven demons were cast out. She lingers. She remains. Her love was such. She didn't care. If all that's left is a corpse, a bloodied, messed up, broken corpse, she wanted him. She lingers by the grave, John tells us. She sees a figure moving in the garden. She thinks, she thinks it is the gardener. She calls on him. She says, sir, polite Jewish girl, do you know where they have laid my Lord that I may come and take him? Everybody else is long gone. The guys are watching the football game. The ladies are cooking dinner. The rest of them are hiding from the wrath of the Romans in the temple guard of the Jewish priests. And Mary lingers on. Wouldn't let go. And that gardener person turns to her. One word. Remember the word? Miriam. Mary. That's enough. When he calls you by name, you will know. He called you by name. And you know. And there is a new name. Assigned to each and every one of us, inscribed upon the white stones, shall be given us in due time. We live by faith, pursuing the vision. And when she heard that name, she recognized that voice. She knew that person. She fell at his feet, and John says she clung at his feet. And the next verse always amazed me. I wonder if you remember it. For the Lord told her, Mary, don't Cling. Let go. Release me. For I haven't yet ascended to the Father. Take it in for a second. 
We are talking about Resurrection Sunday morning. Our Lord Yeshua, the Son of the living God, is en route from hell to heaven. Somehow, he's completing the mission. He is in transition. He's heading up to our Heavenly Father to present the blood upon the altar built without hands. The altar that John saw in the highest of heaven when he was caught in the spirit on the island of Patmos and the door opens up and he's drawn up on the Lord's day. And what does John see? The last apostle alive? Everybody else is gone, dead, butchered. Matthew was killed by a mob in northern Africa. Thomas was crucified in India. Peter, probably together with his wife, according to church tradition, are crucified upside down in Rome. And Paul lost his head to a thick Roman axe. We sent our best to bring you home. And that's why the team here at Christ Church in Jerusalem, that's why we love to look upon the faces who walk through this door, who walk through this camera every week, every service, every occasion when the doors are open because you are the promised children. And the Hebrew people paid a high price to bring you home. And John is the last guy alive. All the apostles are butchered. Violently dead. And they couldn't kill him. Church history tells us they tried. They tried to spear him. They tried to crucify him. They tried to cook him in boiling oil. The guy wouldn't die. This was the same John of whom the Lord spoke, walking by the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and he told Peter, what do you care if this one stays alive until I remain? I think John believed the word. I think he had some crazy faith that sustained him through hell and back a number of times. And they cannot shut him up. And the word is going forth. And the churches are growing all over the known Roman Empire. So they send him to Patmos. No internet. No reception. No mail. Shut him down. Quiet down that message about that strange Hebrew God who is saving people by the blood of his Son, who is gathering up the remnant of the saints, who is preparing a kingdom that will last forever. And on the island of Patmos, on the day of the Lord, he's caught up in the Spirit, and he goes up to the heart of the headquarters in heaven. And what does he see? A lamb, as if slain. In the heart of heaven, there's an altar built without hands. And I suspect that the blood never congeals. It always cries, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Yes, the blood of Abel cries out too. The blood of all who suffer these days. These are turbulent times. I don't think they'll get any easier. And the blood cries out for vengeance. The blood cries out for judgment. The blood cries out for pain and for revenge. But there's a better blood. There's a stronger blood. There's an everlasting blood that cries out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
And here is our Lord Yeshua, according to the Gospel of John, in the middle of his ascension protocol, somewhere between hell and heaven, to present his blood. And he stops on Sunday morning at the breaking of dawn for a weeping woman who would not let go. For her, he stopped in the middle of the resurrection. For her, he slowed down on the ascension protocol. But he told her, Mary, take it easy. I haven't ascended to the Father yet. Don't touch me. But go to my brothers and tell them. This is the story we are mindful of today. And the thing about Easter Resurrection Sunday services is that most everybody who comes to church pretty much know what we are doing. There's not going to be any great mysteries you haven't heard before. There are not going to be any new revelations you haven't pondered in the past. You know the topic of this message, and you know the focus of this worship. And yet you are here. So you're not here to have your ears tickled. You're not here to pay your religious vows. You're here because you love him. You're here because that kind of heart that pumped in the chest of Mary Magdalena is also in you. That thing that won't let go. That thing that still wants another minute, another hour, another eon with my Lord. Show me where you took him. So we pursue. So we travel together. And there isn't much in the Bible about resurrection, period. Hardly any the real theology. Hints and parables. Very few resurrections, in fact, appear in the totality of scriptures, Old and New Testament alike. We read about the child of the Shunammite woman, the miracle child that the prophet gave her by miracle who died and then he breathed life into him. We, we read about that poor chap who was on his way to his own burial. The guys are burying the body of some nameless guy in 2 Kings and the enemy is coming against him so they dropped his corpse into the, into the grave of the prophet Samuel, of the prophet Elisha. And pop, he comes to life. Now, there's a resurrection theology for you. Drop me into somebody's grave, maybe it'll happen too. Not a whole lot of theology. Just wonders and miracles. And of course, Ezekiel tells us about a whole nation called the dead dry bones. In chapter 37, who will come to life. The nation that is right here. The people you walk by in the streets. The bus drivers, the taxi drivers, the tour guides. The guy who cooked your falafel last night. Dry bones coming back to life. You are in the middle of a miracle. The kind of miracle the Bible says is greater than the miracle of the exodus from Egypt. In fact, Jeremiah said, you won't talk anymore about the miracle of the Passover, which we just celebrated this week. Me, my family, and every household in Israel did the Passover. Because that's what we do. We're good Jews. But we started the ceremony with a quote of the Apostle Paul who says, Christ, Messiah, is our Pesach. He is our Passover. And he's already been sacrificed. Not a whole lot of resurrections in the Bible. 
Not even in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we read about the Lord raising of the widow's son in Naim. We read about him raising the 12-year-old girl, Jairus' daughter, the head of the synagogue in Capernaum, just to the north of here. Many of you visited there this time or another time. We read about Lazarus, of course, right across the mountain ridge behind us. A stone's throw away. You see, the first two resurrections happened fast. They died, he raised them. So the critics, and there are critics, always, even inside our heads, the critics will say, well, yeah, maybe they weren't exactly dead. Maybe they weren't really, really, really dead yet, and he just helped resuscitate them. Let them sniff something. Breathe into them. Well, Lazarus, he let him lay in the grave good four days until, as the sisters told him, he stinks. And then he raised him. We read about the hundreds who came to life when the curtain at the temple torn from top to bottom and the earth shook. Hundreds came back to life and walked out of their graves according to the gospel narrative when he rose from the dead. Hundreds of whom perhaps Paul relates to when he talks to the churches in Asia Minor later on and says of hundreds of them still walk among us, he says. Living, breathing, firsthand witnesses. And then there was that guy, Eutychus, who sat on the third story window when Paul gave one of his short sermons. It was a goodbye message to the church in Troas, and he went on and on, and his heart was overflowing, and it was midnight or so, and the young guy, as it happens, shut his eyes, began to dream along, got in the zone. Hey? Itamar is in the zone, a good zone. Fell down, three stories, they thought he was dead. Paul goes down, raises him up. Perhaps it was a resurrection. And what about Dorcas, the godly lady in Jaffa that Simon Peter, Kepha, raised to life? But there aren't many resurrections. That's about all I can remember. Other than ours. This one. So what are we celebrating today? What are we commemorating today? And why is this one unique? Well, for one reason it is unique, because this one never died again. Everybody else had a temporary shot of life, and then they kicked the bucket still. They all went to the grave. Not him. Not our Lord. And so the question to be asked, and I wanted to simply look into the technicalities of the resurrection of the Son of God, Let's first of all consider who raised him up. I know. When I began to think about it, I looked just like you. What do you mean? Well, God raised him up. Of course God raised him up. But how did it happen? Well, we have a few hints about it. The Apostle Paul writes to the Galatian church, and I'll do a quick read through the scriptures just to bless our hearts. And he tells the Galatian disciples, right in the beginning of his letter, telling them, when I find it, these words. It's part of his greeting. Paul, Galatians 1.1, an apostle, not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus, the Messiah. 
and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. So God the Father raised him from the dead. Keep it in mind. Because we read in another text, in Romans in chapter 1, that not only God the Father was involved in that resurrection, but we read these words. Again, Paul's greeting to the Roman disciples, an amazing apostolic sweeping doctrinal statement, the whole page, the whole epistle. And he says that he is him, a bond slaver, a bond servant of Jesus, the Messiah, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. He backs up his ministry through times past into the Hebrew prophets. He says, we continue. We're not here. We didn't drop from heaven. We continue on the footsteps of the prophets, on the apostles. We are part of the roots and the trunk of the olive tree of God. You belong. You'll never be shaken. Concerning his son, Yeshua HaMashiach, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power concerning to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So he was raised. Not only the father raised him, as he told the Colossians, the Galatians, but now he was raised by the Spirit. So the Father was involved, the Spirit was involved, and our Lord Yeshua himself, in the famous discourse in John in chapter 10, says these words. He's spoken about him being the good shepherd. He is the door. Through him they come, through him they go, and he feeds us, and he says these things. Therefore, John 10, 17, my Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me. This is our Lord Yeshua. Self-identifying. Speaking concerning himself. The words in red. No one takes it from me. But I lay my life down by myself. I have power to lay it down. And I have power to take it up again. This command I have received from my father. The entirety of the Godhead participated in the resurrection of the Lord. The Father raised him. The power of the Spirit breathed into him. And his own will and purpose raised himself. I love it. The entire household, the whole family of God, the Godhead itself was engaged in perhaps what I would think in my little puny Mind might have been the centerpiece of the works of God of all times. The resurrection of his son from the dead. The entire Godhead was there. That Sunday morning when Mary was weeping, when John was picking, when Peter was running, when the guards were shocked, when the angels were presiding. John describes two angels. These are the two resurrection angels, and they show up time and again in the Scriptures. Another question to ponder is why did he rise? I know. I looked just like you do when I began to question this myself. Because we think we know. 
Well, he, he, he has to rise. He's God. Sure. He has to rise. Because God promised David, never there will be one lacking to sit upon your throne forever. Yes. He had to rise to fulfill all scriptures. He had to rise to fulfill the promises to Abraham that from his loins will become kings and from Sarah will become kingdoms that will last forever. He had to rise. Of course, he had to rise. But we have specific apostolic explanations to speak to our hearts so that you can carry it out when you live through these doors and you go into the rest of your lives, wherever your lives may be. These are the apostolic reasons of why Yeshua had to rise from the dead. First of all, as we addressed already earlier, the wages of sin are death. It's always been the case from the beginning. You and I, as David so aptly put it, we were conceived in sin. We were born in unrighteousness. The moment that our father's seed hit our mother's egg and that little flash of light shone in our mother's wombs, we were cursed with death. We were born into a cursed race. So the whole plethora and amazing system of sacrifices develops and God raises a nation that has priests and a sacrificial system and an altar and a temple and every day right here a stone's throw away from where we are at Christ Church, Jerusalem. The smoke never quit smoking and the blood of the sacrifices never quit crying and the smell and the stench, it was like a butcher's house. And all of Israel's sacrificial system was just a type, a shadow to show us the way. It was a temporary fix. That's all there was. The only way to undo the curse of death, which is the wages of sin, was to bring us through to resurrection life, where death is no more. He had to rise. But the apostle breaks it down for us. First reasons. The epistle to the Romans. And I read out of chapter 4. Paul is breaking down the story of Abraham. The father of our faith. His faithfulness. His actions. How it was considered to him as righteousness. He says in Romans chapter 4 verse 23. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. But also for us. This is Paul. A Jewish rabbi. He was probably the most educated, scholars tell us, of the Jewish sages of his age. He had the equivalent of three PhDs in biblical studies. Yet he's talking to Gentile believers who two weeks ago still worshipped the demons and sacrificed their children in the temples on Mars Hill. And he tells them with full boldness and assurance of faith, this is also for you. Welcome home. By faith, it is also for us. It shall be imputed for us too who believe in him who raised up Jesus Yeshua our Lord from the dead who was delivered up. He was delivered up. Because of our offenses, someone had to pay the price. But that's not the end of the story. 
and was raised because of our justification. Let me make it simple. Jesus was raised because you and I were justified. In fact, the construction of the Greek language of that particular verse makes it almost unbelievably weird that he would not be able to rise unless you and I were justified. His resurrection is intimately connected. The, the Greek word in what is called in the Hebrew, biglal, or in the English, because. That word in that verse that he was reasoned, he was raised because of our justification. That word is dehei in the Greek. It is a supposition. It is not a word that can be counted by itself. It's connected to something before and something that will come. And he says, because we were justified, he was able to rise. This is the first thing we celebrate this morning. This is the foundation of the, if you would, the whole teaching of justification. He rose because we are justified. I know it's hard to believe. I look at myself in the mirror and I'm like the guys who met the Lord on the mountain in the Galilee, who still had doubts. They're having breakfast with the resurrected Jesus. And some of them, Matthew says, doubted. Yeah, I doubt. I look at myself. I judge myself. I would doubt every day, all day long. And so we get our eyes off of ourselves. He was risen because you and I justified. Beyond what our minds can comprehend right now, we capture it by faith. By revelation, believing, we are just with God in Christ. Secondly, he rose from the dead. Romans chapter 8, verse 34, the same apostle writing to the same group of believers. Tell us these words. What then shall we say? I'm reading out of Romans 8, verse 31, of these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? Paul is beginning to ascend in his spirit. He's going into these high places where nothing is impossible for the child of God. For he did not spare his own son, but delivered him us for us all. How shall he not with him also give us all things? And who shall be bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Messiah who died and furthermore has also risen, who is even seated at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Second reason, Christ had to rise so that you and I have an intercessor in heaven. Right now, he prays for you. Right now, he intercedes. Right now, the blood cries out, holy. Justified. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. They're making progress. They're moving on. They came to church. They opened the Bible. They offered a prayer. They try a little better today than last week. He intercedes. We have a great high priest in heaven. His name is Melchizedek, king of righteousness. Abraham had lunch with him. He appeared time and time again, and he lives forever to offer intercession for the saints. That's why he rose. 
One of the reasons. So what is Jesus praying about? I know. I look just like you do now. When I began to pray, what is he praying about? Well, Reuven needs a raise. Sure, I, need, I could always use a raise. I need a new car. I always need a newer car. I drive junk. We need more healing. We need more, we need more breakthroughs. We need open doors. We need more salvations. God, we need to fix the bells on the roof. We need to rebuild the whole complex for the glory of the Lord. What is Jesus praying about? I'm not so sure. I know what he told us he's praying about. The only time he did. Speaking to a broken down disciple. Being made an apostle. Who is about to betray him three times to his face. And he told him. Simon. The devil has come to sift you like wheat. I know. But I have already prayed for you. What did he pray for? I prayed that your faith will stand. Whatever else the Son of God is interceding for you and for me right now in the highest of heavens, this I know for sure he is praying that our faith will hold. Because our faith at the end of the day, at the end of the journey, at the end of this miserable short life, our faith is our victory. And if you keep the faith, you're in good shape. If that's all he's praying for, I'm so blessed. And give me a raise. Or whatever else we need. Or healing for the children or protection for the grandchildren. Give me everything. But he prays that our faith will hold. Because if we have faith, we will have all these things. Seeking first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. Everything will come. In its due time. In its proper way. He rose to pray for us. We have a high priest in heaven. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The same apostle. And I know I'm staying hard on Paul today. But he's the one who wrote two thirds of the New Testament. And that's where we draw most of our systemic, organized, theological anchors. He tells the Corinthian church. Great, big church. Happy church. Probably charismatic church. They weren't the first charismatics, but they were probably the first ones that went crazy. <laughs> Somebody asked once about the charismatics. Will they make it to heaven? Of course, as long as they don't overshoot it. <laughs> and I'm one too. A word to the wise. And Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church, strong church, rich church. Prosperous in many ways and oh, so troubled. Chapter 15, and I'll be reading out of verse 20. He's giving them instructions for life. Keep your faith, walk properly. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, he says, But now Messiah is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So if you would think he break like us here in Jerusalem, like the Christ Church team here in the Holy City, you would know that today, while the world considers it, it's an Easter Sunday, it's Resurrection Sunday, it is also a Hebraic feast. Today is the third of the seven feasts of the Lord. 
Passover was the first. Unleavened bread is the second. First fruits. Reshit hakatsir in the Hebrew language. The early produce of the harvest is today. God commanded Moses to command Israel, when you enter the land, this feast was only possible to keep in the land. They couldn't do it in the wilderness. When you enter the land on the first Sunday, after the Sabbath, after the Passover, which was last week. So there's no, there's no doubt. It's today. Let them bring the Rashid HaKatsir, the early harvest. Usually it was the barley harvest in Bethlehem a couple of miles down the road. It would come up first from the ground, early spring, and it would, they would capture the first sheaves. They would bring it up to Jerusalem with great pomp and celebration, and they would offer it, the Bible says, as a wave offering before the Lord our God. Thank you, Father, on behalf of the rest of the harvest that is still buried in the dirt. And the apostle says, he rose as that feast. You need to appreciate the moment. At the time when the angels descended, at the time when the earth probably shook, at the time when the stone rolled away, at the time when the guards were flabbergasted, at that very time, whenever the moment the nanosecond of resurrection took place, at that time, the Levites and the priests were marching up from Bethlehem to the temple courts, bringing their little sheaves of the early Reshit HaKatsir, the early first fruits of the harvest. And as they waved those sheaves before the temple, Jesus rose from the dead. On time. Everything is on time with him. He is strategic. He's probably the greatest ADD there is. Everything is just right. He fulfills every feast. He is our Passover lamb. He is our unleavened, unsinful bread. There is no sin in him. And he rose from the dead on the moment of the offering of the first fruits. This is our Jesus. And that's why you came to church today. And that's why you love him today. Because he's that kind of a guy. And the last reason, now he rose from the dead, the apostle says, as a fresh fruits on behalf of all those who will come. Welcome to the resurrection. The Bible tells us very clearly we have been justified. It's a done deal. We are being sanctified. It's an ongoing process. Welcome to the meat grinder. Yeah, he's not done with us until we breathe our last. We are being sanctified. Hallelujah. But we shall. Be glorified. Hey? Amen. There's order. We have been justified. And he rose from the dead as the proof. We are being sanctified. Day by day. Moment by moment. Verse by verse. Prayer by prayer. Relationship by relationship. And tear by tear. We go on with the Lord. And we shall be glorified. When this earthly body. Will take on immortality. And we will have the body that the Lord has, walking through the walls, flying through space, eating what he wants, no cholesterol problems, no high blood pressure. Hallelujah. A head full of hair. I had a vision of myself in the kingdom. 
you would love it. And you would love yourself. He is the first fruits of that eventual glorified body that you and I will receive. There's no doubt about it. And it's all right to talk about it. Yes, we love the process. Yes, we are committed to the sanctification of our souls. Yes, we are committed to the community of faith. Together, we move on as a tribe unto the Lord. And we are also waiting for the resurrection of the body. We'll need something serious to go on forever. For eternity. Eternity is a long, long time. And we'll need a body like him. And last but not least, why was he risen from the dead? We're reading one last verse out of the writings of probably Paul. This one is from the book of Acts. Some say it is second Luke, possibly. Let the scholars debate. We'll know in due time. Acts chapter 17, Paul is in Athens. I love the apostle. The greatest mighty miracles, the way the church has begun, it was all wrapped up in one scrawny body, beaten by frequent fasts, beaten down, shipwrecked, chased around, robbed, persecuted by false brethren in Judea, persecuted by evil Gentiles in, in, in Europe. I mean, the whole of the gospel laid on this body. Talk about the miracles of God. No internet. No fundraising, no newsletter, no YouTube, no, no nice jacket. I love this about God. Yeah, we like our good stuff. We need a decent life. I know, I know. But God does not depend on it. He started a revolution. The second Moses, Paul, the apostle, the greatest of the Jews of his age, a Pharisee of Pharisees from the tribe of Benjamin of the Hebrew nation, and he ventures out into a pagan world that is eaten up with demons, and he wins by the power of the resurrection that is working in his scrawny, beat-up body. And he's in Athens, the heart of the beast. Philosophers and Smart humanists all over the place. Everybody has a pulpit. Everybody has a soapbox. Everybody has got something to sell. And he's there too. Wandering about. Looking at the temples. Marveling. The size of the marble statues. And the gold. And the silver. And the splendor. And the beauty of this world. And in the heart of the apostle I began. I, I believe that he began to understand. That this is his harvest field. Peter, a rough, gruff, uneducated fisherman, became the apostle to the Jews. And Paul, three PhDs in biblical studies, became the apostle to the Gentiles. Leave it for God to make the impossible work. And I believe that Paul began to understand in his heart of hearts that these Gentiles are the goal of his ministry. And he finds himself on Mars Hill. I stood there. Some of you were there too. That little plaque which says that's where Paul stood. That's where he gave them. And he talks to them. He preaches to them about the unknown God. Love that message. He found something in their culture to connect. 
And he tells them these words about this unknown God. He's finishing his speech. It's just before they kicked him off with tomatoes and rotten bananas. Because they had enough of this speech pretty quickly. But he said, not before he said these words. Truly he says, Acts 17 verse 30, These times of ignorance God overlooked. But now, he commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the men whom he has ordained. He has given assurance to this all by raising him from the dead. Last point, why did the Lord have to rise from the dead? For judgment. The judgment will come. By the grace of the Lord, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, the community of faith shall be spared the final judgments. What we will have to endure, God alone knows. So he prays that our faith, your faith, my faith may endure, that we may not shame the name of this Lord. So who raised him up? The entire household, the whole Godhead, Father, Spirit, and son were engaged in the resurrection marvel. And for what purpose? For a million reasons. But these four, we are given an apostolic explanation as a proof of our justification. As a point of intercession. I suspect that will go on forever. I suspect in my heart of hearts that that praying high priest of heaven will always pray about something concerning us for the purpose of to be the Rashid Hakatir, the first fruits of the harvest, the rest of which is still buried in the dust of the world. The children are still coming to life all over the world. So people call us and they're asking, what's happening in Israel? Has your government gone completely berserk? The enemies are smelling blood. You're looking bad. What's going to happen next week? And I tell them, there's nothing new under the heavens. We've been through these cycles before. The only new thing that is going on under the heavens is that His love and mercies are new every morning. God is harvesting the earth. And every time we go through birth pains, every time we go through contractions, more people are hanging on to Jesus because he is the first fruits from the dead, our Rashid Hakatsir. And lastly, he was raised because judgment is coming. And he's the judge. He's the one before whom John fell as if dead on the island of Patmos when he saw him in his true heavenly form with eyes of fire, with hair as white as snow, with a golden staff, with, with feet of bronze. He saw him as the judge, which is why he fell as dead. And the Lord says, come on up. We still have work to do. So, Father, we thank you this day that in In the hearing of your word, in the presence of angels and archangels, saints and glory, 
we humble our hearts and we say, yes, Lord. Yes to all of your promises. Yes to all of your purposes. Yes to the wisdom of the ages. Yes to the resurrected Son of God. Yes to the first fruits from the dead. Yes to the intercession of the Holy One of Israel, the High Priest of Heaven, Malkitzedek. Yes to you who assured our justification by your blood. And yes, for judgment will come. For you are the judge of the living and the dead. But we who are in you make intercession today for all those who are on the way, all those who struggle, all those who still doubt, all those who still question. And we pray, let faith arise and revelation come. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.